Okay, so today I'm going to be talking about um, cosm already a clunky title that's foreboding to what, what's going to come. Cosmopolitan Conglomeration Orientalist Appropriation in Oscar Wilde's The Sphinx. In an editorial review of Ernest Lefebvre, first history of embroidery and lace, published in The Woman's World in 1888, Wilde praised the vital influence of the East as he states that Whenever we find in European history a revival of decorative art, it has, I fancy, nearly always been to, due to Oriental influence and contact with Oriental nations. On a lecture tour to Birmingham in March 1884, presenting the House Beautiful, Wilde is reported to have said that there could be no anachronism, no exoticism in art, for what was a beautiful object at one time and in one country was equally pleasing to the eye centuries afterwards in, in any other country. So Wilde's, on the one hand, recognition of the influence of the East, and on the other hand, his reluctance to discriminate nation, national artistic provenance, goes right to the core of the problematic relationship between cosmopolitanism and Orientalism. Looking at Wilde's poem, The Sphinx, published as a single edition in 1894, my paper interrogates the literary manifestation of, lit of Wilde's ambivalent cosmopolitan ideal of appropriation and conglomeration. Following Kant's model of a universal history, Wilde's cosmopolitanism positively suggests an inclusive concept in which individual nations are subsumed into a world nation to the benefit of a global commonwealth, creating, in Wilde's words, a complete supremacy of beauty over any philosophical meaning. Especially decadent writing had a tendency to turn a blind eye to vernacular cosmopolitan, with exception of what you just presented. Um, and it's famously, obviously, um, a concept, vernacular cosmopolitanism, famously promoted by post-colonial critics such as Said and um, Homi and Baba. As well as adhering to this decadent motto derived from Kantian thinking, Wilde at the same time could be seen as an advocate for a Saidian approach, condemning labels such as exotic art by conflate, conflating stern binaries of West and East in his literary works. So the questions I'm trying to ask is, um, does Wilde's resistance to nationalistic specification qualify as Orientalist because it ignores political implications of engrossing foreign cultural traits and disconnecting them from their history? Or indeed, could Wilde be considered a pioneer of multicultural fusion of national identities that results in celebrating literature as the ideal of aestheticist beauty, transcending categories of national origin? Wilde sourced his own version of the East from his father's travel writings through the Middle East and North Africa in 1837. His decadent French literary godfathers, namely, mainly Flaubert, Gautier, and Baudelaire, and his collaborations with designer and author Charles Ricketts, himself an art collector and expert of Egyptian and Persian artifacts. Due to the scope of this paper, we focus on the lesser known influences from his father and Ricketts before turning to the Sphinx, so sorry to all the go-to fans. Um, Oscar Wilde's interest in ancient art history was not only limited to Hellenic and Greco-Roman geographies, Reading classics at Oxford, Wilde was naturally familiar with literary representations of history as well as with the biblical Christian orient. However, I would like to suggest that Wilde's knowledge of the Hellenic culture mediated through Arnold Simmons, not Simmons, so also with a D, Simmons, <laughs> Cater, Hegel, and Winkelmann, as described by Ian Ross, um, was complemented by a familiarity with the ancient and Islamic orients he encountered in his father's travel writings of 1840 entitled The Narrative of a Voyage to Madeira, Tenerife, and Along the Shores of the Mediterranean. And this title goes on forever, hence I'm sure mm -hmm. that. 
So, but his father also went um, um, mainly to Palestine and, and Egypt, so, and also North Africa, as I said. So in, in Cairo and Algiers, wild fathers found, father found a babel of tongues, such as can only be experienced among the Arabs, the true cosmopolitans. He presented these cities in particular in his writings as cosmopolitan melting pots, only comparable to Paris some 40 years later. If we accept China and Japan, I do believe that natives of every country of the world will be met within the streets of Cairo. Nothing can exceed the incongruous mixtures of nations, tongues, people, and costumes that Algiers at this moment presents. Turks, Moors, Arabs, Badawis, Kabyles, Jews, and Negroes all huddled together with French, Spaniards, Germans, Italians, Maltese, Poles, <laughs> and Genoese. The color and expression of the different countenances varies from the fair, fair French or German to the shining black of Timbuktu. <coughs> Similar to his son years later, Wilde's father in a proto-decadent fashion conflates biblical and Greek history with 19th century mysticism. He writes upon his arrival in Memphis, so you know, obviously a historical site. It was here that the pharaohs reigned. It was here a Joseph ruled and a Herodotus was initiated into the Egyptian mysteries. Here, plague and pestilence swept off millions, and those very rocks and caves that now surround me once flung back the midnight cry that rose throughout the land when the firstborn of Egypt were smitten by the angel of destruction. So, um, obviously, that gives you a suggestion where Wilde has his writing talents from, maybe. <laughs> Wilde might, so uh, might not have read his father's writing, so I didn't find any um, you know, kind of testimony. Yet Sir Wilde's, William Wilde's impressions reflect Oscar Wilde's conceptualization of Egypt as a site of cosmopolitan realpolitik at, at the time, um, as a kind of site of war and, and mixture and cosmopolitan yeah, inquiry, as well as a source of material for fantastical tales and obviously the, the um, yeah, a, a sort of treasure trove for, for anything good, like uh, oriental tales. A similar influence on Wilde's idea of Egypt derives from his friendship with Charles Ricketts. Unknown to most, Ricketts was, like Wilde's father, a keen archaeologist. Despite being Wilde's close collaborator for over seven years and being one of the leading theatrical designers and illustrators of the 1880s and 90s, working together with such prominent figures as uh, George Bernard Shaw, Yeats, and Singe, he published four articles on Egyptian artifacts in the Journal of Egyptian Archaeology in 1917 and 18. He and his partner, Charles Shannon, owned a collection of more than a thousand items, including paintings, Egyptian, Persian, Greek, and Roman objects, as well as hundreds of English drawings and Japanese prints. Among the Egyptian artifacts were jars, vases, boxes, jewelry, gaming pieces, statuettes, amounting to, as Cecil Lewis recalled, a small museum. Apart from their shared passion of collecting oriental objects, Ricketts and Wilde were united by the seal to innovate Western and especially English art by the implementation of Eastern characteristics. Ricketts admits without any imperialist qualms in his diaries that if asked to collect Egyptian, Asian or modern French art, I would do it with some pleasure and without any sense of guilt. There is no love for these arts in England. As a painter and illustrator, he was familiar with Sir Lawrence Alma Tadema and Sir Frederick Layton's representations of the East as a mixture of ethnological documentation and romanticized voyeurism. His own illustrations for the woman world, woman's world and the Sphinx represented antiquity as a realm of desirable objects. However, they 
are openly aware um, of their anti-realist nature and do not hide the fact that they are sprung from a Western imagination. As Ricketts' letter from Cairo in 1911 illustrate, illustrates, Ricketts and Wilde were aware of Orientalist actualities. A kindly tram wafts us along a dusty road. The pyramids appear quite suddenly. The rich chocolate-colored ground and parrot-green grass seizes abruptly at the touch of the sand. We enter the kingdom of the dead. So, however, he continues to, to, ex, uh, to counterbalance his very decadent descriptions of the things. This phrase is pompous in a sense untrue, since shrieking, ignoble, intolerant Arab life surrounds you, clamoring to sell sham scarabs or imploring you to ride camels or donkeys. The Sphinx is smaller than one thought and suffers from the crowd which gathers here and shrieks. Allah is dying today, slowly and more certainly than Amon. So Amon is sort of the ancient, ancient Egyptian god. So I think it's quite a nice juxtaposition between the, that sort of the ancient myth survives, whereas the yeah, the, the current culture is sort of going down. Already in the 1880s and 1890s, Egyptomania, uh, as well as Egypt Egyptology, at the time developing as a specialist category of classical archaeology, were in full swing. Wilde frequently participated in discussions arising from this conjunction of science and spectacle. In his review on Hugh Stuckfield's Ride Through Morocco, published in 1886 in the Pall Mall Gazette, Will engage, will, Wilde engages with current politics in the Middle East, or rather the, the North Africa. The picture Mr. Satfield draws is in many respects a very tragic one. Of the great intellectual civilization of the Arabs, no trace remains. Fez, once the Athens of Africa, the cradle of the sciences, is now a mere commercial caravanserai. Its universities have vanished, its library almost empty. Freedom of thought has been killed by the Quran, freedom of living by bad government. In the following years, Wilde published two articles by Helen Mary Tirad, titled A Lady in Ancient Egypt in November 1888, followed by The, the Great Sphinx, 1889, um, which engaged with current trends on Egyptology in the widest sense. In an 1897 letter, so still, still being uh, contained in prison, to, uh, he wrote a letter to, to Robbie Ross, to his this, um, literary ex executor later, um, requesting um, some books by field-defining archaeologist Flinders Petrie. So he, Flinders Petrie was the first um, arch arch Egyptologist in, uh, to take over the sort of um, professorship in UCL that was especially created in the 1880s. And um, <coughs> this was supported by the British Egypt, Egypt Exploration Fund, which was founded in 1882. Um, so he was a very eminent figure and publishing lots about um, uh, kind of finding out way back to 450 years before Christ. Um, and he wrote um, um, a book, Egyptian Decorative Art, which is um, in, 19, in 1895. And in prison, Wilde created a list of wrongs, obviously Flaubert and, and everyone else, the French people I mentioned earlier. And then on the bottom list, he also lists Flinders Petrie on Egypt, in brackets, Egyptian decorative art, 1895, full stop, any good book on ancient Egypt. So the message was clear to, to Robbie Ross. The composition of the Sphinx began in 1874 when Wilde was an Oxford undergraduate, developed, was developed when Wilde visited Paris in 1883, and was finally published as a luxury edition in 1894 designed by Ricketts. 
From the out outset, this was a cosmopolitan project, sourcing its materials apart from his father's travelogues and Ricketts, um, Ricketts kind of travel writings and knowledge about the Middle East, majorly from Flaubert, Gautier, Baudelaire, and Edgar Allan Poe, obviously. The poem, however, also reverberates with Wilde's own fascination with Egyptian culture and architecture, which already surfaced in <coughs> Dorian Gray. So Dorian Gray was really published 1890, and there's a passage where Dorian has a, reveries, uh, a reverie of the obelisk in the Place de la Concorde that weeps tears of granite, and the hot lotus-covered Nile where there are sphinxes and rose red ibises and crocodiles with small barrel eyes. So already that is hard to read. It's very hence conglomeration. Um, so um, statues of sphinxes were desired decorative art artifacts exhibited not only in Paris, but also in London and obviously also at the Ashmolean Museum in, in Oxford. So they were ready readily available for inspiration for Wilde. The connection between architectural monuments of ancient Egypt, especially imported, physically imported to Britain and deplaced into to Britain, and Wilde's poem was quickly made as a review upon the publication of the work in 1894 in the Palmal budget testifies. The monsters of the Egyptian room at the British Museum live again in Wilde's weird, sometimes repulsive, but all the same stately and impressive lines, presenting a procession of far-sought pictures of ancient Egyptian luxury. Whilst the Sphinx is indeed a stone-fashioned dream, an art artifact of verbosity, his taste for Egyptian architecture is reflected in the poem's geometric geometrical construction in three parts and an excess of stone imagery, so it's almost kind of culminating like a Sphinx. Um, constructed out of 87 16-syllable iambic couplets, the clear emphasis lies on skilled <coughs> versification, as Wilde claimed rhyme gives architecture, and the idea of the object poem, but also the poem as an object. In the poem, the reader is introduced to a student in his sol solitary den contemplating a little stone sphinx, couching, somnolent and statuesque. The speaker starts to animate this curious cat, demanding her to sing me all your memories. In a shower of anaphoric questions, and did you watch, and did you mark, and did you follow, and did you talk, the speaker offers a series of alternative interpretations of the object's history spanning a thousand weary centuries. This inquiry is driven, as Nicholas Frankel observes, also in, Rick, in Rickett's illustrations, by a basic archaeological impulse to dig beneath the surface of the Sphinx. As the poem unfolds, the speaker's imagination, made breathless through enjambments that connect whole stanzas, pours out a plethora of mythological and outlandish imagery culminating in the poem's climax in part three. Here the speaker revels in the Sphinx's and Ammon's unleashed sexual briskness until the Christian vocabulary dominates the denouement of the scene. The speaker is, in a sense, a micro-reader, himself deciphering the f reading the Sphinx, deciphering the Sphinx as a relict, and the reader of the text on a sort of meta level is deciphering the whole poem, rendering it as a site of cosmopolitan conglomeration. Um, so I think it's very, it's just very difficult to read because it is it it has you need to be an expert to know. Or it's, it's only fun if you look up all the words. <laughs> so for example, words such as um, porphyry. I'm not sure how many people know what that is. So porphyry is a, a red crystal that's specifically found in Egypt, and they already appear in their typo typography as precious um, stones or artifacts of foreign origin, which you can't straight away kind of determine where they come from. 
throughout the poem we find um, other objects of diverse uh, provenience. So it's, uh, for instance, a Ch Chinese mat, yellow gems from Kurdistan, and statite from Sadan, today's Lebanon. Cosmopolitan encounters in the Sphinx supposed memory are man manifold. Greek priestess Io is aligned with the Jewish maid, that is Mary. Assyrian gods are mentioned in the same stanza as the Colchian witch, witch, which is Medea. And swarthy Nubians meet Memphian lords. So there's lots of international gatherings going on. By cluttering the text with such cryptic codes requiring specialist knowledge, Wilde carefully selects his audience. In true simplest fashion, as Richard, Richard Almond maintains, Almond maintains, instead of researching in books, Wilde looked in dictionaries for bizarre words with which to rhyme his exotic subjects. The images of mythological figures on the one hand intrigue the reader and goad him or her to pursue their origins, yet also constitute a deliberate hurdle, metaphorical stumbling blocks that obscure the poem's homoerotic connotations. Wilde's eroticization of Ammon, king of the gods, and as the Sphinx and Cleopatra and all these sort of um, hybrid figures is both of Greek and Egyptian origins. And this showcases Wilde's endeavor to conflate binaries. Ammon is a very good example of such cosmopolitan conglomeration and orientalist appropriation. So he's pieced together out of broken bits. And in the following passage, the speaker addresses the Sphinx and the reader alike. So I'm going to do a bit of dramatic reading. So um, the speaker sort of imagines how, how the Sphinx pieces together, needs to find again the, the broken pieces of her beloved Ammon. So they, in, the, in his imagination, they sort of have a little affair. The god is scattered here and there, deep hidden in the windy sand, and many a wandering caravan of stately negro silken shawled, crossing the desert, holds her pulled before the neck that none can span. And many a bearded Bedouin draws back his yellow striped burnous to gaze upon the titan views of him who was thy paladin. Go seek his fragments on the moor and wash them in the evening dew, and from their pieces make anew thy mutilated paramour. Go seek them where they lie alone, and from their broken pieces make thy bruised bedfellow, and wake mad passions in the senseless stone. So, I mean... This is just a little example, and I'm not sure, do people know what burnous are? So that's um, a particular type of a Berber cloak. Um, it's, it's a garment. And then a paladin, anyone? <laughs> so it's a kind of a chivalrous knight or hero, and that's obviously derived from, from some the, the Song of Roland and, and King Arthur. So as you can see already there, it's, uh, you need a lot of references to be able to get what's ac what actually is happening. This passage not only refers to the Sphinx's endeavours to recover her beloved Ammon, but it also it is also Wilde's address to the reader. In order to revive the senseless stone, the over-chiselled text mass, which is laden with embellishment and at times in, indeed senseless, the reader needs to put the pieces of the riddle derived from Western and Eastern mythologies together in order to experience a cohesive narrative. The poem's message, Away to Egypt, Have No Fear, which concludes the poem, then is that reading is a dangerous yet rewarding activity, an act of losing oneself in the other, in our case, the luxurious East. Its consumption can evoke mad passions, thereby, while it's sort of opposing Victorian fears of Bovarierism, a term T.S. Eliot later used to describe Flaubert's heroine's momentaneous detachment from reality, the decadent um, 
obviously consciously seeks this liminality between life and art and also cosmopolitan inclusion and Orientalist discrimination. Reading what some critics have regarded as the poem's disappointing end in this light rather points to what the artistic salvation Wilde might have seen in cosmopolitan liberalism. Despite humbly returning to the safe haven of Christianity, the speaker defies the seductive powers of the Sphinx by shouting, leave me to my crucifix, uh, which, is, and this sort of, which is in the face of this splendid power of pagan mythology, a mere barren sham. The speaker's final line gives Wilde's conviction away. Christ on the crucifix weeps for every soul in vain. The term in vain suggests that not religion, but only art, or in Wilde's words, a complete supremacy of beauty over any philosophical principle, can secure man's immortality and the survival of different cultures. Hence, Wilde's poem is ultimately a promise to the decadent readership. Cosmopolitan literature can be liberating, can wake each bestial sense, and allow the reader to take on the role of a creator and acting for himself what he would not be, taking on the role of the other. Um, also, Charles Ricketts' illustrations and the layout of the poem's luxury edition visually recreate their contents invitation to a dialogue between the text and the reader. Often the Sphinx is hidden, for example, or it's cut off by the margin or an object, or it's interlaced in the structural arrangement of proliferating garlands. The reader needs to engage with the network of references and accumulated detail of East and West in order to find the Sphinx and its meaning. To conclude, the decadence need for a dialogue with past and present traditions and cultures is reflected in the fantasy eclipse's increasingly cosmopolitan exchange of artistic ideals and exploration of literary strange influences. By incorporating Eastern tropes, Wilde's purple prose created a new brand of English literary text, a progressive instead of decaying, connecting tissue between the East and the West. Even though his play, play Salome, obviously the most famous um, of his oriental works, and the Sphinx conjure up Orientalist imagery, the appropriation of the East is not to be classified straightforwardly as Orientalist. Wilde invites the reader in these texts into a dialogue between East and West. Thus, through the decadence cosmopolitan involvement with the foreign and remote pasts, even a literature intended to have no political message had a straightforward impact on Victorian social realities, as, for example, his trials um, testify. Um, despite a heavy orientalizing thrust, the Sphinx is a marginalized text, yet iconic within the Wildean canon, features not only as a site of literary exploitation of the East, but also as a progenitor for a new European avant-garde, namely the British decadence. The East is, in decadence writing, a center of, creates a center of interest out of marginality, so by bringing out something that's, that's on the periphery and obviously very much in the cultural debate, but kind of taking that into, into, um, into a British context, they sort of create a new, um, a new trend out of, out of a marginalized um, um, locality. Thus, the effects of an appropriation of the East, famously criticized by Said, need to be reevaluated to see that the East had a vital and dynamic role in this building process, as I hope this paper has shown. The Sphinx emblematically represents such avant-garde networks created between the text and reader, author and reader, and authors amongst themselves, embodying a symbol paradoxically founded, to use Matthew Potolsky's words, on disintegration, on national linguistic and historical hybridity. She provokes questions of sexual anxieties, imperial superiority, 
and cultural purity. As much as Egypt remained a treasure trove for Europe throughout the ages, whilst the Sphinx remains a literary excavation site between cosmopolitan conglomeration and orientalist appropriation. Thank you.